Well, thanks everybody for coming at the crack of dawn. I couldn't believe the temperature at 6.30 this morning. Um, it was a little shocking to me as a northerner, but um, I guess it'll cool down next week. Um, so thanks all for coming so early this morning. I also want to thank Chris from AV for giving me a computer. I have a lot of words on some of my slides so that you have handouts that have a lot of information and my eyes don't work so well in the morning. So I really appreciate the, the extra help um, with a laptop here. Um, I don't have no disclosures. Uh, what I'm going to talk to you about in the next 50 minutes or so is um, primarily how to manage folks who have active opioid use disorder while they're in the hospital, kind of that perioperative management. I'm going to talk a lot about um, appropriate goals and the importance of working as a team and uh, also talk about some communication strategies. Uh, as I was introduced, I now work at the University of Washington. I work at Harborview, which is the level one trauma center for the Pacific Northwest. But it's also a patient safety net hospital. It's got a special mission to the vulnerable populations. We serve 67 languages there as the major port of entry on the West Coast into the United States. Um, and we have um, uh, quite an active uh, pain service, maybe 30 patients a day on our acute pain service. And I count pretty much every day, and at least half, if not two-thirds, of those patients are active heroin users, uh, which is quite a different uh, practice than I'm used to from the Midwest. Uh, I don't think it has to necessarily do all with the location. It's this culture and climate that we're in now. So uh, this is really kind of the day-to-day -day activity that we have. I want to give you a little bit of background, and I know you know a lot of this stuff. You've seen these figures, but um, it's still shocking to me, the numbers, uh, as I mentioned, on the day-to-day -day pain service. According to the Centers for Disease Control, um, nearly 700,000 people have died from drug overdoses since 1999, and most of those do involve an opioid. A lot of them, obviously, are multiple substances, but in 2017, 68% of the opioid or the overdose deaths had um, opioid tied to them. So we've seen a six-fold increase in overdoses involving uh, opioids. And uh, the last I looked, on average, 130 Americans die e each day, which is just uh, unbelievable to me. And you'll see these, uh, this figure from the CDC, the three different waves of um, reasons for that. So I'm sure every one of you in this room has been affected uh, in some way, whether it's a neighbor or a colleague or a patient. Uh, this is from People Magazine in 2017. And you'll see it says, um, you know, really it affects all aspects of life. Uh, it does seem to be a, a bit of a young person's uh, epidemic of sorts, but honor students, Lawyers, newlyweds, executives uh, have all been affected and, and die of this. Uh, it's, it's really important, I think, for us to, to get a grasp on understanding the disease of addiction, that this is not a moral failure. This is really a disease that hijacks the brain. Uh, this is from National Geographic last year. I would highly recommend uh, you can get this online, going back and looking uh, at this article about the science of addiction. Uh, this is Jana Rain, who... Um, went to heroin two years after a work-related injury where she was prescribed opioids. And she now lives under the I-5 outside of close to the hospital I work, um, where we had last year, I think, something like 7,000 people living in what's called the jungle, uh, permanent like homeless camps, uh, living in disease and um, 
really terrible conditions because of a lot of mental health issues, but certainly because of addiction issues. Again, just if you haven't had a chance to read some of the background and kind of understand the sociocultural evolution of this epidemic, I would recommend these three texts. Uh, the Pursuit of Oblivion was recommended as a book to read at the beginning of the decade of pain control and research, which was probably now 15, 20 years ago already. Uh, it really goes, it's really the global history of narcotics. And one of the things I thought that was pretty um, prominent in that book is it really talks about how sobriety is not a normal human state. Uh, in any sense of the world, we are all looking to feel better or to feel different or to escape our problems. And this book uh, is a beautiful text. It's very thick history. It goes back from the Opium Wars all the way to the Bush administration and talks about kind of the U.S. policy against drugs. Dreamland, uh, I think, got a lot of lo uh, national press in the last couple of years. You'll probably, if you read this book, uh, recognize some of the people that might even be at this conference that are interviewed about that. And again, it's a very fascinating story of how um, opportunity with cell phones and home delivery uh, provided opportunity for businesses for uh, underprivileged, poor town people in Mexico to come up and really have this thriving business that really helped spread uh, a lot of the access to opioids, and then again, the National Geographic. So these three texts, if you want to, I'd really highly recommend. Okay, so here's one of those slides. It has way too many words, right? No more than seven words across or seven lines down. Uh, but I, I think we have to kind of always have this in our front, right? What's the diagnosis? Does uh, someone have an opioid use disorder? Obviously, it's clear when someone comes in and they uh, have heroin metabolites and they say they're having heroin use, but, um, you know, this is kind of hard, and we now have a lot of talk going on about, um, you know, the legacy population of patients in this country that have been on chronic opioids for 10, 20, 30 years. If you look at some of this criteria, it's sometimes kind of hard to differentiate, and we now um, are trying to best figure out how to categorize and care for patients who have more persistent, complex dependence on opioids due to pain conditions. So again, just a reminder, this is a problematic pattern of opioid use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress manifested by two or more of the following within a 12-month period. So taking larger amounts or, um, or longer than intended, persistent desire to unsuccessfully efforts to cut down, craving, strong urge to use. Uh, again, um, things that I think you'll see in many of your patients, your, your chronic pain patients at times. So it, it's difficult. All right. Many patients, as you know, uh, come to us and they are using many different uh, substances. It's typically maybe not just one. Um, I've crossed out a abuse because we're really trying to change the language. Uh, people are not users or relapsers. Uh, again, to try and normalize this as a disease and say, you know, they may have opioid use, but they're not a user. I think that has a really negative connotation. It might um, be helpful to ask patients after you've established a relationship with them to dig in a little more about what other substances they're using. Typically, as you know, when people first come to you, the thing that's of most concern is an opioid use disorder and probably alcohol because of the danger of the withdrawal um, syndromes and the, the, the need to try and address those and manage those right away. Cocaine and methamphetamine have self-limiting withdrawal. We see a lot of methamphetamine 
And we always say that's three days of being grumpy, sleepy, and hungry. Um, and that's difficult after a, a major operation or a trauma to differentiate. Is that sedation because of their methamphetamine withdrawal, or have we over-medicated uh, people with sedative drugs? Um, and cannabis is usually not um, clinically significant. You know, obviously it's legal in the state of Washington, um, but of course we can't use it in a hospital because of the federal law. One of the things we're seeing um, is a little more use of kratom. Um, it's kind of hard sometimes to differentiate this. Uh, kratom, in my understanding, can really be considered an opioid. Um, it's a tropical plant from Southeast Asia. Uh, typically, it's leaves that were smoked, chewed, or brewed. A very bitter herbal solution, so typically um, consumed with Coca-Cola or some other sweet beverage. And it's kind of an interesting drug. I think there's a whole presentation on Kratom uh, either tomorrow or the next day. Excuse me. <coughs> so at low doses, it has more of a stimulant effect. And at higher doses, it provides more of an opioid, um, opioid effect. And uh, in Southeast Asia, it's been used for pain, diarrhea, and uh, a lot of people here in the United States now have been using it as a cheap substitute for um, reliance on opioids. So it might be easier to use Kratom than go to a methadone clinic every day or to suppress you know, opioid withdrawal. Uh, the onset is five to 10 minutes. It lasts about two to five hours. And unfortunately, there's really not a good, easy, convenient detection test. You can't just get a urine or a blood test the way you can with some other drugs. So there's positive and negative side effects, um, but physical dependence has been reported. And we're now seeing some deaths in the United States, which really is rare historically for this herb. Um, and I think it's because who knows what it gets mixed with. You know, when people buy it, it's probably got a lot of other things with it. So when people come, you know, again, universally, we have to always screen everybody, right? And just assume use and, oh, and ask very open-ended questions. What do you use? Um, okay, thanks for being honest. Appreciate that. That's really helpful for your safety and for, our care, for your care. So tell me how much and how often and when did you last use? Uh, it's really important because patients sometimes use the morning they come in for scheduled surgery if it's their second or third um, surgery. And do you have any feelings of impending withdrawal? Because one of the things we really want to do is try and manage withdrawal and not let people go through withdrawal and go through this detox uh, stuff because there's no need for that and it actually can put someone in a more dangerous situation. So many challenges that we have to deal with with this population. Altered nociceptive threshold. These people do have more pain. Some of the hyperalgesia, hypersensitivity, I think, was first coming out of methadone studies that um, the thresholds are different. There is a change in that. Um, so they do experience more pain than, than other folks. Physical dependence, as I mentioned, is an issue, uh, and the withdrawal syndrome tolerance. Certainly we need to use opioids in certain situations, and how do you use that, and how do you, um, you know, work around tolerance, and yet understand that these patients are still at risk for an overdose. I don't know about you, but for many years I was taught that, you know, once you're tolerant, your risk of respiratory depression is very little, and that doesn't seem to be the case. People can still have a respiratory depression episode uh, from opioids. Impaired immune response, uh, impaired healing, you know, obviously a lot of these folks come in with necrotizing soft tissue infections. Uh, things that are uh, difficult to deal with. 
and then the behavioral issues and trying to sort these out. You know, is this anxiety? Is it withdrawal? Is it mental health? Drug craving, uh, poor coping skills. Uh, one of the psychiatrists that I've worked with um, at Harborview said to me that he, he had a patient who said, you know, um, you've just taken away my one coping mechanism when you take away the heroin or the freedom for the opioid use disorder. And now, you know, this person is in the hospital, they've had a trauma, they're facing other physical and mental challenges, and their coping mechanism was their heroin, and we've just taken that away. So uh, very important to kind of be able to address that. So I want to introduce you to um, one patient. This is a real patient that was seen at the hospital I work at, and we actually um, ended up interviewing Eric for one of our um, National Institute of Health Center of Excellence uh, case modules. Um, I know the NIH is fixing their website right now, but you can go on and you can use this module to teach uh, your undergraduate, your health sciences. Uh, it's developed as a module for interprofessional education, which is really nice where you can get um, you know, the six or seven health sciences together to talk about how do you co care coordinate and work with patients like this. But Eric's case, I think, is not that unusual. So. Um, he was 23 when he was admitted. He was actively using heroin, and he presented with right arm, excuse me, right leg pain and swelling after injecting heroin into the muscle. He was really sick. He was in the ICU. His white count was over 60,000. He was otherwise pretty healthy. He had a history of an appendectomy. Um, he was diagnosed as necrotizing fasciitis. Uh, he required numerous debridements. I think in, in all he had maybe 30 surgeries during the six or eight weeks, you know, back and forth to the OR for um, debridements and grafting and such. Uh, he had been on methadone, um, was his history at some point, but obviously had stopped taking it. He was living on the streets for uh, several years at the time. He did have a supportive family, and the family said, you know, he had a long history of unsuspected depression. So when a patient presents like this, we have to think about what are our goals of care, right? I mean, first and foremost, we want to keep him alive, uh, keep him safe. Um, but we want to optimize both his pain and his medical treatment. And it's important for us to understand with folks like this that withholding opioids is not going to cure addiction, and providing opioids is not going to worsen addiction. There isn't anything worse than two to three grams of heroin a day that you're going to be providing in the hospital to try and manage his pain. And really important that everybody's on the same page and that we minimize the uncertainty about why we're doing things and what the goal is with both staff and the patient and family. So I just want to kind of briefly go over um, these big buckets of goals of care. So it's not just let's get his pain down to a 5 out of 10 or let's just have him survive. It's really um, the goals of care are really a thorough assessment of what this patient's needs are. Um, preventing opioid withdrawal, controlling his pain, safely completing his medical care. We don't want this patient to leave AMA as soon as he can walk um, and go out and come back sicker or spread infection. Um, and hopefully this is an opportunity for us to engage in addiction treatment while he's in the hospital. So key points. Talk to the patient, right? 
We need to hear this patient's story and figure out where he is and what his goals are and what his understanding are. Talk to the team and really start with an end in mind. Where is this guy going to go? Um, certainly at the hospital I'm at, the patients may be returning to jail. They may be going to respite, which is um, uh, kind of a day treatment center where patients can go. That's not really sober housing. We understand patients um, may have harm reduction strategies and they may, may be still be using, but they can get medical care like wound care during the uh, the day and they can sleep there at night. Uh, they may be going to a skilled nursing facility, which may have some limitations on how they're going to be able to um, take a patient um, either on methadone or buprenorphine. And again, you know, Eric ha- it was not in treatment at the time, but the patients uh, have been on methadone treatment. You know, how are you going to do that handoff back to the primary care provider? Even though it may be two months down the line, you got to start planning for that early on. So here's just a reminder about doing those thorough assessments. Um, this KISS tape is my favorite assessment for doing a thorough pain assessment. Um, one of my pet peeves every morning is to hear the anesthesia residents say, you know, somebody, they call and he's, the patient's got pain of 10 out of 10, and so I did this. And it's like, well, what pain are you talking about, right? Um, people have often multiple injuries. Uh, they may have chronic pain, they may have acute pain, they may have some complication involving. So um, really a thorough history or assessment of what that pain is. And very important, some focus on the expectations and the goals of that particular pain type or pain syndrome. For looking at a substance use disorder, we really want to establish rapport with someone. It's very difficult to get a thorough assessment in one visit. You have to establish a relationship for someone to trust you. I always um, think of these admissions uh, as one of guilt and shame and fear. These people feel judged. Whether you judge them or not, they, they feel judged. And they're fearful of pain, and they're fearful of judgment, and they're fearful of withdrawal. So you often do get different stories depending on who's talked to them and what, what time of the, you know, how many times you've talked to them and what your relationship is with the person. And really listen to their history and see, you know, what's happened in the past. Is there a recovery story in there that we can um, build on to try and help this person take a step uh, towards engagement and treatment again? So use open-ended questions and um, listen and reflect for concerns about problems that the person's had. Because as you know, many of these people have had negative experiences in the healthcare system. So a lot of mistrust. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, understanding uh, what dependence and withdrawal looks like. So a reminder, I think many of you know this, when people first start taking uh, an opioid, they may get that euphoric feeling or the high. They may be developing tolerance over time, so they have to take a little more to get that effect. And it doesn't necessarily take that long before um, people really are waking up feeling sick and they need to you know, take the substance to get up and drive their kids to school or uh, go to work in the day uh, and to feel normal. So um, it's not that people are you know, always out getting high. It's, it's trying to like escape from feeling miserable and to feel normal to function sometimes. Uh, 
There's no evidence that detoxing someone in an acute situation or hospital setting is going to impact that disease. In fact, the evidence seems to be that they're more at risk for leaving uh, after they're discharged and then having an overdose. Um, some of that came out of the prison system, but you see it in hospitals as well, too. So we really want to avoid detoxification. Um, and so the way we manage opioid withdrawal is uh, patients may need higher doses of their short-acting acute opioids, but we often facilitate that by using methadone. Um, for patients who have limited prior opioid use and, and not a lot of withdrawal symptoms, we might start with just 10 milligrams of oral methadone. But typically what we do where I am is patients get started on 10 milligrams three times a day. And again, that's segregated and understood that that is not for their pain control. That's to prevent opioid withdrawal. And we often talk about trying to stabilize the admission. You know, when someone is in withdrawal and they're fearful and they have impending signs of withdrawal, they can just be frantic and it's very difficult to get them to, um, to talk to you, to focus on anything other than give me more opioids. Whereas methadone can really help someone feel better and feel more safe and, and, and stabilize them behaviorally so that you can uh, continue to engage in treatment. It's important to get an EKG prior to starting methadone. You know, we give a lot of drugs in the hospital that can affect the QTC interval. So um, we've just published a paper uh, with about 120 patients that we've used, and I think we only had about three that we had to really with, with, uh, lower the dose of methadone because of EKG. But, you know, that can be a life-threatening issue, so it's important. Uh, we don't exceed methadone over 40 milligrams a day without an addiction medicine consult. And part of that is because sometimes the decision may be to um, in, uh, start someone on buprenorphine while they're in the hospital. And so to go from methadone to buprenorphine, we don't want to be at huge doses of methadone because that makes it a little trickier. But safely completing medical care, um, these are the problems that you know, you're, we're seeing in these patients, whether it's abscesses or... Um, endocarditis, valve lesions, spinal cord compressions. So again, we want people to stay engaged in their medical treatment, get their antibiotics and get well uh, versus leaving AMA, which uh, you know, six years ago there was a fairly high rate of uh, people leaving AMA in this revolving door in the hospital I am. And I think having these protocols for using methadone more regularly and engaging patients has made a huge difference. So in the hospital, this is a teachable moment. It's an opportunity to talk about treatment and link with treatment. We have chemical dependency counselors who do a uh, SPIRT. It's a screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. It's called SPIRT, S-B-I-R-T or S-B-R-I-T. Same thing, I guess I said. Uh, and sometimes, you know, what they'll do is they'll just end up talking about harm reduction strategies, better ways to inject, safer ways to inject, because people aren't at that moment where they're willing to engage. Um, but can we engage this person in recovery? We have peer navigators, um, primary care, and mental health. And understand, again, this is that continuum of the readiness to change. And you'll see, I'm sure, people uh, at very opposite ends of the spectrum, pre-contemplation, where people, I mean, people are very honest often and say, I have no interest. It's a lot easier for me to get my drugs on the street. Uh, I don't want any treatment. I've had it before. I'm going to use heroin. And it's like, okay, thank you for being honest. We understand that. Here's how we're going to treat you in the hospital. And 
here's what we'll do when you go home, versus people who come in who are on maintenance who are pretty stable. And people flip around in this too, right? You've, you've seen them like even in one day, they may say, oh yeah, I think I'll, I'm interested in buprenorphine, and then it's like, no, 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 I, I, have, I have no desire to do that. So I think just consistency and being ready to try and meet the patient where they are. And remember that failure to engage in treatment is not a failure. This is part of the process, it's part of the disease, and people um, come in many times, and whether they're coming to the emergency room or um, the hospital for another surgery or infection, now is now the time that we can help you um, get, get off this crazy train that you're on. All right, so let's talk about pain, right? That's what we're here to talk about. Uh, again. Here we are at patient engagement, uh, and this is pretty similar for anybody, whether they have an opioid use disorder or not. Uh, critical as a biopsychosocial phenomenon and syndrome is to talk to the patient and really have an understanding of, do they understand what's causing the pain? <clears throat> They're not fearful that this means this or that. Um, how are you going to assess the patient, including their functional assessment? What are the goals and the expectations? We're not going to be able to get rid of your pain completely. And what are the treatment options? And where are their choices and where are their not choices, right? Um, you, we're going to try and give you some control, but, you know, you don't have, a, you can't have, you know, unlimited amounts of IV opioids. And why you're doing this? What's the rationale for this therapy? Uh, here's your iconic cartoon for balanced, rational, multimodal analgesia, understanding that we're going to combine pharmacologic strategies that work in different ways that together provide, hopefully, smoother, better pain control with less side effects, as well as including in some non-pharmacologic strategies, because those are critical, too. So, you know, depending on that patient, what's the best uh, combination of stuff that you can provide? Um, Obviously, we're going to use some opioids. We're going to try and respect tolerance, but we're not going to let tolerance drive our dosing completely. Uh, it looks like the literature is that patients who are tolerant, even with heroin, you know, probably need two to three times what an opiate-naive patient needs. They don't need 10 times. Now, you may have been using 10 times. They were using 10 times when I first, <clears throat> I mean, in the past, and certainly when I first arrived in Washington, and that's because we weren't using methadone. I think we were using our short-acting opioids to try and um, prevent the opioid withdrawal. So segregating the methadone from the short-acting opioids has made a big difference. We've found patients do very well with multimodal analgesia with even like 10 to 15 of oxycodone, not like 50 or 60 or 80 of oxycodone for their acute pain. Uh, a schedule may be beneficial for all kind of helps cut down that, you know, will you give me some, will you give me some, and that fear of am I going to get some is just scheduling the medication. Certainly uh, for non-opioids, it's really important to schedule non-opioids. That's, that's one of the national guideline recommendations, and we know that people don't often get PRNs unless they're scheduled. So uh, in terms of some of the recent Joint Commission accreditations, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of scrutiny on all PRN medications. Why did you give a Tylenol and an opioid when they were both PRN? It's just easier to schedule your non-opioid medications. Oral is always the preferred route. Uh, again, um, if somebody does need preneral for a while, IVPCA might be key and may be very helpful to give patients with opioid use disorder some control. Um, we often reduce or 
do not order RN, PRN boluses when we give IVPCA. So again, we cut down that hassle for both the patient and the nurse about, okay, it's been four hours, can I have my series of boluses for my IVPCA? We sometimes set lockout intervals up to 90 minutes, again, so that we don't have to have that contentious relationship between the RN and the patient if they really like craving and seeking opioids, and really disentangle the non-opioids from the opioids. It's not like tit for tat or this or that. It's like the non-opioids are scheduled, they're helpful for your pain control, and you know we're not basing our decisions about the non-opioids on what we do with our IV opioids or our oral opioids. Gabapentin and pregabalin can be super helpful, as you know, perioperatively for all patients, but certainly in this population, there's now over 79 randomized controlled trials and multiple systematic reviews for these drugs perioperatively. Uh, Again, you know, they don't completely take pain away like anything does except perhaps local anesthetic. Uh, but small reductions in pain and some opioid sparing, and the side effects are really not, to me, that big of an issue. Uh, the numbers needed to harm for sedation is 35 and dizziness is 12. Um, but you do have to make sure that you give the appropriate dose. Um, there was uh, some reports, you know, of these drugs being uh, misused or abused uh, on the street, And, of course, that makes sense to me because these drugs are anxiolytic. They can help reduce some of the symptoms of opioid withdrawal. They can help with sleep, and they don't wreck sleep architecture. So they can be really a nice uh, adjuvant to help for for several problems that people may be dealing with. Um, Ketamine was actually recommended in the American Pain Society's 2016 post-op guidelines to be provided to any adult with a major operation as part of a multimodal analgesic therapy. Uh, We use it on certainly anybody who's considered to have opioid tolerance. Um, We now actually have a protocol in our hospital where any surgeon and anesthesiologist can order it in the OR and it can run for 12 to 24 hours without the involvement of the anesthesia pain service because at these doses it's relatively safe and easy to do and we really haven't had a lot of trouble with side effects. Probably the worst side effects um, you you often see would be nightmares or perhaps hallucinations, which interestingly don't seem to be too bothersome to patients. They'll say, yeah, it was very weird. I saw this like green man sitting on somebody's shoulder. It was just the most bizarre thing I ever had, but it wasn't like super distressful. Um, We do have a big mental health population, as I mentioned. So for sometimes for these patients, I think it can be unsettling and can cause more problems in in that group. But again, this can be something that can be very helpful. Boy, I tell you, um, local anesthetic is certainly uh, ideal if you can provide some type of regional analgesia, nerve block uh, of some sort, especially uh, when you have bone pain. I don't think there's really anything that gets on top of bone pain except blocking that nerve in the the first few days. A topical lidocaine solution can be super helpful for our patients with necrotizing soft tissue injury because... um, it gives really pretty good pain relief, as long as it's provided in the right timing. It takes a little while for this local anesthetic to set up in the tissue to provide that brief period of kind of topical anesthesia. Um, so again, this, this can be very helpful if you, if you haven't used it. There's plenty of recipes out there for using topical lidocaine for dressing changes. Non-pharmacologic strategies. As I said, super helpful. I mean, some of this is just basic comfort, too, right? Um, The noise, the lights. uh, There's there's some scientific studies on pain that just simply reducing the lights can help 
you know, diminish people's pain. And if you think about that barrage of stimulation to your nervous system when you haven't slept and you've basically run a marathon because you've been to several surgeries, uh, anything we can do to just try and make you more comfortable is going to help, I think, with that pain control. Uh, and then I always think in terms of multimodal of two buckets to pull from. What can we do physically and what can we do cognitively? So think about physical as things that um, can actually affect the physiological responses, kind of that hands-on touch, cold, heat, positioning, and then the behavioral cognitive things. How can we help you wrap your mind around this a little different or, or separate that from it? A lot of benefits from non-pharmacologic strategies besides pain control. They can reduce anxiety and improve mood, decrease fatigue, um, improve your sleep, which is very important, as you know, in the hospital uh, and in life in general, and really help restore hope, really help people feel better all the way around. So Let's talk a little about communication strategies. I'm sure you've had a patient similar to this. Someone's admitted with a history of heroin use, has been frequently requesting higher doses of IV opioids, saying there's no way pain can be controlled using oral medicine. That doesn't make any sense. Person's very angry, uncooperative with interviews, doesn't want to get out of bed, doesn't want to um, participate in therapies, says people are constantly judging him because he's an addict, right? You've been there. What do you say? You're in the room, you've got two seconds, you've got a million things to do, you're trying to just get one more thing done, and, and how, do you, how do you work with someone like this? I think, um, I hope you can read these. I hope, I mean, for me anyway, it's always been helpful to try and practice and rehearse and have some consistent messages and sentences that I can provide because it always gets me distraught. People can easily press my buttons when I'm talking to them and then I get angry and it's like I'm doing math with my 13-year-old when he was 13, now he's 30, and I still get in discussions with them, you know, about uh, who's right or who's wrong. So validate the person's frustration and fear and emotions. I know you're in pain and I know you're worried. We're going to work together with you and do our best to try and do this. Um, you know, I see that you're, you are functioning a little better and sleeping. You know, help them reflect on those little teeny progress gains. You Think about where you were a couple days ago. You, you are getting better. This is kind of normal part of the course, and, you know, I understand you're angry. Um, try and depersonalize this. It's not just me. This is, you know, this is the way we treat people because there's scientific evidence that it can be helpful. I always say to people when they want IV, it's not so important how we get the opioid into your body. What's more important is that we give you the right amount at the right time. And though IV seems stronger, it just is quicker, but it doesn't last as long. And oral is recommended and the better way to go. I'm really sorry you feel this way. It sounds like it's really terrible for you. I understand how much it can be difficult to understand why we're saying no, no to more opioids, but we do care about your safety, and I know there are ways we can work together. So let's separate out what we can talk about and what we can't talk about. And there's no need for us to argue. I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, that, that particular thing is off the table, so what can we do next? And, and again, just be consistent. Um, you know, people have had a lot of practice sometimes with fighting and, you know, arguing against this, and I think we just have to hold our ground. Again, here's just some other words. You have the right to leave the hospital, but I'm still not going to give you an appropriate 
medication. People come to the emergency room and threaten suicide. We're not going to give you opioids because you say you're going to kill yourself. We're going to try and help you in other ways. So consistency and communication. Don't make promises you can't keep. Uh, commit to care for the patient's pain. Use multiple therapies. Assure adequate dosing. Emphasize uh, with clear limit setting. And try and be as non-judgmental as you can. And really important, again, communicate with the team. Gather a team conference. Sometimes you have to do this a couple times a day. Uh, you know, it's always a problem in the hospital. You know, sometimes uh, the night nurse comes on, hasn't seen this patient for ever, ever. You know, it's a whole different crew, and things fall apart, and there's phone calls. And um, so it's important everybody has this, the same supportive plan of care. So what do you do when a patient's using in the hospital? Because they do use in the hospital all the time. Um, Again, very important to document and communicate what's going on. Uh, Sometimes we've had situations where it's happened over the weekend and nobody really documented it, and then not everybody knows what's going on, and it causes some chaos in the plan of care. Um, We try and uh, are very very clear with patients about what will happen if they do use. We're concerned about your safety. We're going to hold opioids until your signs of acute intoxication, you know, uh, go away so that we don't overdose you with your regularly scheduled medication. Um, We routinely, when we know someone has an opioid use disorder, use uh, oral solution rather than tablets because oral solutions are more difficult to put in your cheek or hang on to and then um, either go outside and sell for heroin or crush it and use it or inject it while you're in the hospital. Um, And again, oftentimes when this is happening, it's because we haven't adequately addressed the withdrawal issue. If people are going out and using or they're using in the hospital, we sometimes have to regroup and say, did we adequately manage this person's withdrawal? Because clearly they're still feeling this overwhelming need and desire and craving to use again. Uh, so just a couple of comments about methadone and buprenorphine. Um, as you know, methadone uh, can only be dispensed from uh, an addiction treatment center. If patients are admitted uh, on methadone, their daily methadone dose should be continued. Uh, it has a very unpredictable and long half-life, so it should not be used for managing acute pain. You can't take a, a, a methadone dose that's been used for addiction and try and just increase it to deal with acute pain. And as I said, when we start it to prevent withdrawal or to manage withdrawal, we don't consider that part of the analgesia, even though people may get a little of it, especially if you're doing divided dosing in the first couple of days. Um, And then you have to really think about uh, where's the person going to go. You know, uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, the nearest methadone treatment center may be two and a half hour drive away from where the patient lives. So it can really cause some trouble with planning if if that's probably the better way to manage this person's addiction. Buprenorphine, um, boy, as a trauma center, it's interesting just to see the increased number of people coming in who are already on this. The CDC, you know, this has been one of their three-pronged approaches to deal with the opioid epidemic is to encourage the use of buprenorphine and buprenorphine providers. So when someone's in a trauma or a planned surgery, we have to figure out, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to stop the buprenorphine? Are we going to continue the buprenorphine? And I think the more experience we get with this drug, the more we've realized that it really has differential blocking effects. And you can sometimes very much continue this through the course of a surgery or trauma Um, maybe increase the dose a little and use pure mu opioid agonists to deal with the pain in addition to the buprenorphine without having 
um, really big problems. Our addiction medicine system service has been doing microinductions. There's a couple papers out on that now where um, if patients are going to be in the hospital at least five to seven days, they will actually start, you know, when people are in huge doses, even on methadone, uh, we'll start buprenorphine at tiny doses and gradually go up so that by day seven they can smoothly just stop the methadone or the other opioids and continue on buprenorphine. And it's a much more uh, predictable, pleasant experience for a patient because many people have maybe used buprenorphine on the street and gotten sick because they didn't know how to use it, and so they're afraid of it. And so, you know, we can do that while they're in the inpatient setting and do it in a much more controlled, hand-holding a way to kind of start their buprenorphine. But of course, you need uh, somebody who's got um, the right uh, DEA number to be able to write the prescription when they leave. And you know, if, if your pain service is doing this or your addiction service is doing this and your surgery service is writing the discharge prescriptions, again, a lot of care coordination has to occur uh, to do this. But this is something that I think everybody is now addressing. And here's that care coordination at hospital. I've talked several times about how important early discharge planning is. Um, we have sometimes used this methadone three-day rule, um, which we only do it when we know someone has a methadone appointment scheduled. And that means that we can dispense, or actually not dispense, we can administer. The patient comes back to the hospital, one of the residents runs down and actually administers methadone for up to three days so that if they've been started on methadone in the hospital, they don't have this big gap before they go to their uh, treatment center. Has anybody else used this three-day rule where they work? Yeah, one or two people. So there is a way, you know, it's legal to give methadone for addiction and for pain while they're in the hospital, but you cannot prescribe or give methadone for addiction as an outpatient. They only can get that from their federal addiction treatment center. The only exception is this three-day rule. And again, that's to fill a gap for a very high-risk patient where you say, you know, we're going to just have you come back for three days because that's as soon as we can get your appointment. For people who are likely to go back to heroin, again, we've had people that are very honest who said they're definitely going back to heroin. Um, we often just stop the methadone the day that they're discharged because that long half-life, if they've been on it for a week or so, it just kind of slowly wears off. And they're probably going to use heroin within a few hours of leaving the hospital. Um, we may provide a short, a, a limited amount of um, short-acting opioids if they've been on them for their pain, uh, but not usually more than a, than a couple of days' worth. Um, that often can just be a currency um, to sell to, to, to get heroin. And um, uh, uh, clearly, we want to provide naloxone uh, to most people these days that are on opioids. All right, so just again, I want to um, close by going over a, a case and talking about three different scenarios about the way this hospitalization could go. And this is kind of a, a, a compilation of a real patients that we've taken care of. This was a 42-year-old male construction worker, hospital day number three, post-op day number one, admitted after a single-passenger rollover car accident, was positive for uh, alcohol and opioid. He had a mild concussive injury. He had a laparotomy and a splenectomy. So he has a thoracic epidural in place, um, had high opioid requirements in the recovery room, was sent to the floor, 
diet was advanced. Now he's on oxycodone 5 to 10 every 4. With Tylenol, uh, scheduled 1 gram Q6. His epidural is running at bupivacaine, 1 8th percent at 8 cc's an hour. So kind of a nice little regimen. Frequent calls to address uncontrolled pain despite the full-ordered medication and frequent IV boluses. Um, surgery saw the patient, said there wasn't really any sign of a complication. Uh, and so the epidural needs to be assessed. So epidural is assessed, patient's super anxious. He's saying his pain is 10 out of 10. He's got a soft belly, can't really localize the pain. It kind of hurts everywhere. Um, good sensory block when the epidural is evaluated and the patient begrudgingly divulges, occasionally was using heroin, but doesn't want to be treated as an addict. So let me go through these, these three kind of treatment regimens. <clears throat> so this is minimal care integration. By that I mean you don't have really that full kind of scope of professions and care planning to look at it. So the regional service assures the surgical team the epidural is functioning. They bolus it, increase the rate, concentration. There's really no improvement. Patient refuses to mobilize unless the pain is controlled and is reporting pain of 10 out of 10. So some IV opioids are uh, increased. Um, 0.5 to a milligram of hydromorphone and oxycodones increased to 20 to 30 every three. Patient says, I feel a little better, but uh, still bad. On post-update number three, patient's now consuming 240 of oxycodone a day and 12 milligrams of IV hydromorphone. Lorazepam gets added because of the anxiety. Uh, patient's still agitated, clock watching, threatening to leave the hospital for pain, poor pain control. On day number four, the epidural gets discontinued. Patient says no change in pain. Uh, the IV uh, hydromorphone gets reduced to Q8 hours because this guy's eating and drinking a general diet. Um, and provi accusing providers of not treating my real pain. And the patient's leaving the wheelchair, leaving the floor in wheelchair. Uh, nurses find needles at the bedside. Uh, okay, patient's ready to go home, says I'm not leaving, this pain is too bad, you have to do something. Oxycodone dose is now 10 to 30, Q4 to 6 hours. Uh, IV morphine had been, hydromorphine had been increased. He's still on the lorazepam, refuses all non-opioid adjuvants, gets discharged on day 10. So, you know, you've got this seven day, from day 7 to day 10 where you're trying to get rid of the IV opioids and the patient's unhappy, I'm not going to leave. Um, Gets discharged home, says the pain is barely managed on 10 of oxycodone, 10 to 30, Q4 to 6. Gets the maximum fill of tablets, still on the lorazepam. Gets readmitted on day 17, following a post-op wound check for uh, a wound infection and admits that he's injecting heroin through the incision site. Doesn't really hurt so much. So this is one of the worst case scenarios, and this is not that uncommon. I mean, I used to see those kind of patients all the time, right? This guy could have died. Uh, all kinds of bad things could have happened, but this is kind of how the, the old traditional system has dealt with it. So here's a little better way this case could have gone. Um, so this is still post-up day number 10, discharged uh, home, bear, saying the pain is barely managed with the 10 of oxycodone, but we have a follow-up in a transitional clinic, a clinic that can see these patients every two or three days to try and help with opioid taper or just kind of manage the pain a little, help the surgical service um, discharged not with 252 tablets, but with 52 tablets, and given some information about getting some addiction treatment. Um, 
course, it didn't go that well. Patient calls for an early refill, says the pain's been worse, denies fever, chills, but threatening to call the newspaper now because my pain is not being treated, offered non-opiates again, declines. Seen in this transitional pain clinic, uh, altered mental status, denies illicit use, uh, but's run out of pills after two days, uh, checks then to the surgery clinic, wants more pain medication, and again, gets admitted saying he's injecting heroin through the incision. So it's a little better scenario in that there was an attempt to engage the patient in mental health with some referral. Um, I don't know. I think we could do better than that. So here's probably the optimal way this could have gone. Again, we're back to post-up day number two. The pain service assures the surgical team the epidural's functioning. They bolus it, check the concentration, et cetera. Um, so this time we gave the patient PCA. Um, 0.4 of hydromorphone, endorses a little better pain control. Um, still using pretty high shift, 18 milligrams in a shift. Um, but with a little more talking and a little more control over the IV opioids, uh, admits to using $200 a day over the last six months for heroin. Recently lost his um, marriage. Uh, because of his ongoing use, doesn't know what to do, he's anxious, frightened, never had any prior treatment, doesn't really know what to do. So um, discuss with the need to replace the use of heroin with methadone. So methadone was started three times a day. A chemical dependency counselor was engaged to come up and see the patient and talk to them about what the options were. Uh, the methadone was continued. Um, PCA's seemed like it was decreasing. There were fewer requests for PCA boluses. Patient seems determined to engage in outpatient methadone treatment. Um, again, uh, by post-up day number four, accepts non-opioid adjuvants, including some of the physical modality. And really, this, this is a patient who said, you're not going to stop that methadone, are you? Because felt so much better uh, having the methadone and stabilizing the, kind of the withdrawal and the fear that was going along with that. So Discussion with the care continuity nurse, the local uh, methadone uh, treatment center, um, trying to coordinate how to work with um, all of those. <clears throat> Patient discharged and is now really hopeful. Says, I can manage my pain. Maybe things can work out. I see a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, the, this is a patient that had uh, some bridge methadone dosing uh, for those couple of days between discharge and going to the methadone treatment center, but again, had uh, a short supply of short-acting oxycodone, but notice only given uh, 24 tablets, a maximum of eight tablets a day for those, those three days and followed in transitional care clinic. Um, anyway, you get the picture, right? I think it makes a lot more sense to kind of have that kind of integrated Thing. So the end case for the best scenario is I think we had improved patient and provider satisfaction. It was facilitated by methadone, a marked reduction in risk, I think, of opioid diversion for the community. Um, we probably had a better length of stay and, uh, and maybe avoidance for this uh, readmission with infection. So take-home points. People with substance use disorder can get into treatment at any point in their career. Interactions with the medical system are a good off-ramp to try and help people get into that. And a little knowledge goes a long way. So I'll just end with um, a picture of Eric. Um, <clears throat> Eric actually got interested in healthcare. He'd been doing some landscaping, um, I think, before he became homeless. He ended up going to the University of Washington and became an RN. 
And um, when we interviewed him last year, I think, he was working for the navigation team for the city that goes out to these homeless camps and actually engages people in buprenorphine treatment. So I think his story is a real story that can happen. Thanks. I know it's, I'll stick around for a minute, but I think people need to go because it's...